Good morning. My name's Chris, uh, one of the leaders here. I just want to congratulate you on being good Canadians, right? We got like our first dose of what it actually means to be Canadian this morning. I think like I saw like seven flakes of snow uh, fall from the ground and you came like you love Jesus. That's amazing. And then in our infinite wisdom as a church, um, just further demonstrating the tomfoolery that is the leadership here. We plan the vision and prayer night the same night as the Super Bowl. And that's only because Jay Weir is on sabbatical and he's the only football fan among us. If it was like a Raptors playoff game, Matt and I would have been all over that. But uh, so for those of you who love Jesus uh, more than football, oh, uh, we'll, we'll see you tonight for the rest of you. We'll pray for you. Um, Sinners go to hell. Uh, anyway, just kidding. Grab your Bibles. Go to Matthew chapter 7. Oh, yeah. Uh, we're just testing the holiness of our church by doing things like this. Okay. Or we're stupid. Probably the latter. Uh, Matthew chapter 7. We're going verse by verse through the gospel of Matthew. Have been for some time. Uh, we're in a section of the gospel of Matthew known as the Sermon on the Mount. And we are now on the home stretch. We're almost done the Sermon on the Mount, which means we can uh, continue on in the gospel of Matthew. So we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. We're going to get through six verses this morning by God's grace. What I want to do this morning is read through them all together uh, and then come back and unpack them. So if you have your Bibles, if you have an app on your phone, open that up. If you need a Bible, they're here. The verses will also be on the screen. Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 says this, do not judge or you too will be judged. Uh, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when uh, all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Verse 6, do not give dogs, uh, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn, uh, turn and tear you to pieces. Before we unpack this, let's just take a moment and ask the Spirit to speak to us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these words that you spoke, Spirit. We thank you <clears throat> that you inspired these words to be written, preserved for us. Father, we thank you that you love your children. You only discipline those whom you love. And so we thank you, God, that you gave us this, to know you, to know how to live, to know what it truly means to be human, to know how to love one another well, to know how to interact with the world around us, to know how to glorify you with our lives. We thank you for these words. But it is with humble hearts that we sit before them. And we ask, Lord, that you would use these words to sift our hearts, to separate uh, what is in there that does not bring you honor and glory, to separate wheat from chaff, that in the next few moments that we have together, that spirit, you would reveal to us our brokenness and our sin. You would make Jesus seen in such a real and powerful way that we would be compelled to love him more and walk away from the things that keep us from him. And in doing so, we would look more like you. We would act more like you. We would talk more like you. And through our lives, you would be glorified. So have your way with us, we pray, Lord Jesus. And all God's children said, amen. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. 
right out of the gate, Jesus comes and gives us his big idea for this section of uh, this passage of scripture. So you see this in the first half of verse one. Jesus says, do not judge. That's his big idea for us this morning. Now, if you're uh, a Canadian, which I'm assuming the vast majority of us are that are here this morning, this is, this is like the Canadian life verse, right? We love this verse. Do not judge. Uh, you know, good Canadians who are passive aggressive, we apologize all the time. We don't want to offend anyone. Tolerance is like our core value and highest ideal. This verse speaks to the heart of every good Canadian. A few weeks ago, I was at my local watering uh, hole Pilgrim coffee shop. Shout out for John and Janet Pilgrims. And I, uh, I came in and there's two, if, you, if you're familiar with the place, there's two comfy seats. And I walked in and I, I, I saw them there. I was there to do some reading. I didn't need like my laptop or anything. I was there to sip an Americano and, and read a book. So I sat down in one of the comfy seats and I realized as I was sitting down that someone else's stuff was all over the table. Like this is how observant I am and how mindful of other people I am. I actually stole someone's spot. And so the lady was up getting her coffee. She came back. I realized I was in her spot. Here's what happened. She apologized to me. I said, why are you apologizing to me? Like, I stole your spot. I should be apologizing to you. I said, you're so Canadian. She's like, you're right, I'm sorry. I'm like, no, no, stop doing that. Stop, stop like, I, I'm, so, I'm so, this is us though, right? We, we end every sentence with a question, A, right? Just in case, like, we want to give people the option out. Why? Because we don't want to offend anyone. And so we hear a verse like, do not judge, and it fits right into the current cultural reality that we live in. I mean, if you are, you know, even slightly aware of what's happening in culture right now, like tolerance has become the highest ideal in our society. So we have this big idea that kind of flows out of this postmodern mindset that says all truth is relative. Anybody can believe whatever they want. And as long as you're not offending anyone else, then no one else has you the right to tell you what you're doing is wrong. I mean, obviously that's completely circular reasoning. And the second you speak up against it, they become intolerant of your intolerance. And it's just, it's tomfoolery, but this is the reality, right? We love this verse in our current cultural climate. But here's the thing, though, this actually seeps into the church, right? The church is planted in a culture. The culture, if we're not careful, can start to infiltrate and, and, and get its way into the bones of the church. And so this is a part of the reality of the church culture as well. You can't tell me what to do. You can't judge me. If I had a nickel for every time I met a new person out in the lobby, we exchanged phone numbers, we go out for coffee, I asked them how they felt about their time at Westfield. Here's what, I, this happens, like, I can't tell you how, if I had a nickel, I would not need to draw a salary. It would be lovely. Here's what happens. They say, oh, I love West Village. Okay, what do you love about it? You guys just tell it like it is, man. Chris, you just right between the eyes, unapologetic, just go for it. We love that. And I, this is what I always say every time. I'm like, I'm just going to warn you. I'm going to warn you. The day is coming where the, you know, the canon, so to speak, not the Chris canon, but the spirit canon, the truth canon is going to be pointed at you. The spotlight is going to shine on the darkness of your heart. It is going to point at something in your life that needs to be corrected. And they're like, oh, I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. I'm like, no, it, you're stupid. I don't say that part. That's just like my inner thoughts. I'm like, you have no idea what you're talking about. Sure enough, something happens. They leave because you can't judge me. You can't tell me how to live my life. You can, right? Do not judge. Do not judge. Theological liberals love this verse. 
right? This is the only verse that theological liberals actually think is inerrant. Every other verse is up for grabs. Every other theological position is up for grabs. And as soon as you start to challenge anyone on their lifestyle, on their theological positions, what do they do? They pull out Matthew chapter 7, verse 1a, and they say, look at what Jesus says. He says you can't judge. Here's the problem. That's not what Jesus is saying. See, what Jesus isn't saying here is the church, Christians, people, I mean, this is obviously Jesus giving the Sermon on the Mount to his followers. He's giving us the constitution of the kingdom as we've been talking about, as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus is giving the imperatives of what it means to be a kingdom person, what it means to live in the kingdom, what it means to be a part of his church family. And what he's not saying here is you cannot judge. Right, this is biblical interpretation 101. It, it, you know, last week it was whenever you see the word therefore, ask what is it therefore. Here's here's part two of that lesson. Never read one verse. Never read one verse. Right, Philippians 4:13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That includes winning an MMA match. I'm not sure that's what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he was writing to the church in Philippi. Right? That's just not how we, but we quote that all the time. I got a big job interview, Philippians 4.13, man. No, no, Jeremiah 29.7, at every baptism I've ever been to, it has nothing to do with baptism. It has everything to do with living in exile. This is not how we understand the Bible. Never read one verse. And so what we have to do is we have to let scripture interpret scripture. Scripture tells us what scripture means. You are not the arbiter of truth. I am not the arbiter of truth. The spirit is the arbiter of the truth of truth. And the Spirit has told us what the Spirit wants to say because the Spirit wrote the Bible. So we let Scripture interpret Scripture. So when we come across a verse that says, do not judge, we should probably go, wait, wait a minute, that's a kind of judgy statement, isn't it? You're judging right now, wait a minute. The New Testament, the Bible in general, the New Testament in particular, Jesus' words are littered with judgments. If you just go down a few verses, we'll get there in a few months, but verse 15 where Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. Well, how do you watch out for false prophets? It's not by taking them out for coffee, giving them a back rub, having a tea together, hoping everything. No, no, you have to judge them. The apostle Paul, when giving instruction to elders, what does he say? This is the Chris International version of the New Testament, but it's feed the sheep, shoot the wolves. Keep one eye on the flock, one eye on the field. And when you see a wolf, what do you do? Again, it's not a counseling session. It's not a back rub. It's not a pat on the bum and say, go get them, tiger. It's boom, done, dead. How do you determine if someone's a wolf? You judge. You have to make a judgment. You have to make an assessment of their character, of their theology. It's what you do. To Timothy, Paul tells us to watch our doctrine and holiness, the holiness of our lives closely. How do we do this? By judging. Matthew chapter 18, we'll get there in 2027. He says, if your brother sins against you, go confront him, right? Church discipline is laid out for us in Matthew chapter 18. What are all of these texts telling us we are to do? Judge. Judge. So what Jesus is not talking about here is that the church is supposed to be this passive, never offend anyone kind of people who don't speak the truth and just let everything go. That's not what he's talking about. It's so important that we grasp what he's saying here. What Jesus is doing is he's giving us the difference between how to judge and being judgmental. Having a spirit 
of judgmentalism. I'm not even sure if that's a word. Having this sense in our hearts of being hypercritical. You see, there's a difference between judging and being judgmental. There's a difference between speaking the truth in love, as the Apostle Paul talks about in the book of Ephesians, and being a bombastic, self-righteous, hypocritical, hypercritical jerk. And the Apostle Paul, or sorry, Jesus rather, is saying here, judge, yes, but do not be judgmental. Judge, yes, but do not be judgmental. And so for us, what we have to do is ask the question, how then are we to judge without being judgmental? You see, because the biggest difference between a person who judges well and the person who has a spirit of judgmentalism is this. The person who has a spirit of judgmentalism has forgotten the most important thing, and that is the gospel. They have forgotten the fact that they indeed have been saved by the grace of God. They've forgotten the fact that they are broken, they are jacked up, they are messed up, they are sinful. The very thing that they are likely calling out in someone else's life, they themselves are guilty of, and that God looks at them and doesn't hold them to a standard that they could never attain, but rather lays down his life for them, offers them an invitation into his family, fills them with his spirit, fills them with his grace, fills them with his mercy, And so instead of being the type of people who have a natural disposition towards love, grace, kindness, mercy, inclusion, and still hold to the truth, what ends up happening when we forget the gospel, when we forget the reality that God is good and we are not, is we drift into this place of judgmentalism. Where we elevate ourselves and we put everyone else down. And here's the danger We are all susceptible to this. One of the early church fathers says that the human heart is incurably religious, meaning this, that we all seek out ways to justify ourselves. That word justify ultimately means to make oneself right. It's actually a theological term. One of the ways that we understand what Jesus did for us on the cross, one of the words that we use, some of the language we use around this is the word justification. In other words, we have been spiritually justified by Jesus. We've been made right, cleansed, made right in the eyes of the Father because of what Jesus has done for us. And what the early church fathers meant when they said the human heart is incurably religious is that we will seek ways to justify ourselves. And here's ultimately what this means. And this is the very essence of all religious thought, all self-righteousness is this, is that what God did for me on the cross to justify me, to make me right, is not enough. And so therefore, I have to do something else to justify myself. This is the very essence of why you gossip about people. You gossip about people because you want to put someone else down to make yourself look better. Because you are insecure, because you are not feasting on the love of Jesus to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart, to make you feel like you are good enough. And so because you don't feel like you're good enough, you have to go somewhere else to satisfy the longings of your heart. So if I can make that person look bad, then I look good. And then for a brief moment, I feel good about myself. It's so, so, so easy to fall into this trap of not 
judging rightly, but having a judgmental spirit. See, right now, some of you are thinking, this is what you're thinking. I'm glad I'm not judgmental like those judgmental people he's talking about. Busted. Oh, man, I wish so-and-so was here today. They really need to hear this. I said to Andrew while I was preparing this, I'm like, this is like occupational hazard here. Like every five minutes, I was thinking of one of you, right? (laughs) I had to keep repenting. Like, wait a minute, this is actually about me. I'm a jerk. It's not just them that's jerks. I'm jerks too. I'm a jerk too. And so Jesus is warning us here. In his kindness, he's warning us because he knows it's so easy for us to slip into this place where we become hypercritical, we become a religious Pharisee, where we become judgmental. And ultimately, this is what happens when we become this way. We do not make Jesus look good. And so Jesus is saying, if you want to be a kingdom citizen, if you want to be a part of my family, this is what it looks like. Judge, yes, but do not be judgmental. And here's what he says. He gives us two kind of warnings, okay? If you look at the second half of verse one. So he says, do not judge or you too will be judged. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Jesus says, if you have a spirit of judgmentalism, here's what is going to happen. You will be judged also. If you're a hypercritical, religious, Pharisee, a neatnik, here's what, is going to be the end result. You will be judged. Now, what does Jesus mean? Does he mean that if I judge other people that they will judge me? In a sense, there's some truth to that, right? There's a way in, in which this is the reality. It's kind of this reverse of the golden rule, right? What you have done to others, others will do to you. There's a, there's a reality here. If you're, if you're that guy or that gal who's gossipy, who's judgmental, who's hypercritical, who has a spirit of judgmentalism, the reality is you're going to get back much of what you have received. People are not going to want to be around you. People are going to want to isolate themselves from you, leave you alone, and you will find yourself in isolation. Why? Because you're not fun to be around, right? Nobody wants to be around a crusty, old, and I don't mean like old in the sense of like chronology, just like this kind of chronologically, just this crusty, old religious person. It's not fun, it's, it's, nobody, nobody gets around that guy or that gal and goes, man, we should invite them to our party next weekend. Like, they'd be great to have. I can't wait to introduce them to all of our friends. No, it's the opposite. You want to be away from people like that. So, so here's just an interesting question to ask, right? Like, this is kind of a sub point to the whole point Jesus is trying to make here. But if you find yourself living in isolation from other people, you, you generally find that people don't want to be around you. You don't get a lot of invites out very often. It could just be that you're, you know, a social introvert or something like that, but it's quite possible that you have a spirit of judgmentalism. It's quite possible that people just don't want to be around you. And I'll, and I'll just say this. If you want to know if you have a spirit of judgmentalism, ask people that know you. If you want to know if you're a religious, hypocritical Pharisee, ask your wife or your husband. Ask your kids. It's a dangerous question. That's not not the full thrust of what Jesus is saying here. Right? Will we be judged by others? Yeah, in a sense we will. That's just kind of the way life works. But Jesus is saying, 
something even more profound, more, I think, more confrontational than just that. Do not judge or you too will be judged by who? By God. You will be judged by God. You look at what he says in verse 2. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. With the same uh, measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus says the standard that you hold everyone else to, the standard of expectation that you have for everyone else, the way in which you look at people, evaluate their lives, the way in which you criticize others, that is the way in which you are going to be judged. Now, again, you might be here this morning and you're new to faith, new to church, got invited by your friend. You're like, oh, this is a great Sunday to bring them. And you're thinking to yourself, I could never, I could never worship a God who is judgmental. Or maybe, maybe you've been a part of a church tradition where like this just is not stuff that gets talked about a whole lot. There's, there's some realities we have to deal with here, right? Like in the New Testament, we see the reality that God is a God of judgment. He's a God of love. He's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy, but he's also a God of justice. The Puritans had this way of speaking of what Jesus did on the cross in our place for our sins is this. I believe it was C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He said, the cross is the place where justice and mercy kiss. When we look at the cross of Christ, we see the mercy of God, absolutely. And we love to sing about the mercy of God. We love to celebrate the mercy of God. We should. God in Christ took our sins. Beautiful truth. We love it. We revel in it. We raise our hands. Our hearts are elated when we sing about it and we preach about it. But there is also this reality when we look at Jesus on the cross that we see the justice of God. That our sin was so real and so severe and so harmful that God himself had to go to such great lengths to make us right with him. This is justice. We know that God is a God of justice. We know that even if you're here this morning and you're in Christ, you've given your life to Jesus, you've been filled with the Spirit, you've been made new, all the things we sang about and said were indeed true. You've been justified in the eyes of God the Father. But there is a reality where we will stand again in front of God and he will judge you. He will judge me. He's going to judge our lives. He's going to judge whether we lived our lives for Jesus or not, whether we poured our lives out for Jesus or not. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 talks about Jesus coming again to judge the living and the dead. And some of us hear this, and here's what we think. I could never worship a God who judges. The reality is this, friends. This is a new phenomenon in the last hundred years in the Western world where we have looked at the justice of God and saw it as something that was not worthy of worship. Uh, we live in a world, you know, it's Instagram awesome, right? Everything's perfect all the time. We endure no hardship for the most part. We all have a place to lay our heads. We have food in our fridge. We all drove here. For the most part, everything is good with a few exceptions. Generally speaking, life for us is awesome. And so we can't figure out what this God has got his tail in a tizzy about. What's he so ticked off about? But if you go to other parts of the world, you know, if you go to parts of the Middle East, if you go to parts of Africa, 
if you just rewind the tape on Western civilization, even just a couple hundred years, where things weren't always awesome. Like, like let's just pretend hypothetically you lived in some part of Africa in a village somewhere under a tyrannical leader and your husband or spouse, whatever, had been taken from you. Your, the women in your village were sold into prostitution. The children in your village were killed and you didn't know if you were going to live another night. The thought of a God who was not just would terrify you. You see, for us, we have a hard time worshiping a God who judges. But for that person, they couldn't worship a God who didn't. And so so we have to kind of wrestle with that. Tim Tim Keller has this great line where he, he says, if your God, the God you worship, agrees with everything you think and everything you feel, there's a really good chance that you made him in your image. God's going to judge us. Is he loving? Is he kind? Is he gracious? Is he full of compassion, rich in mercy? He is indeed all of those things. But do not miss the fact that he is just. And do not miss what Jesus is saying here. That the same measure, the same standard, with which you look at everyone else's life, he's going to look at your life with that same measure and same standard. And for a guy, you know, I'm a self-admitted religious hypocrite. All good preachers are hypocrites. If you ever find a church and the preacher's awesome and not a hypocrite, run. I love it when people say, man, the church is full of hypocrites. I'm like, I know. It's led by hypocrites. That's the whole message of the gospel. But as a guy who can recognize, man, I think he was thinking of me when he wrote this. This terrifies me. This terrifies me. Thanks be to God that this is not where he ends, right? Jesus doesn't end here. He keeps going. Look at what he says next, verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, this is a little lost on us, what Jesus is saying here, but essentially, I mean, these two verses, three verses are just dripping with irony and humor, right? This would be the equivalent of like a modern day uh, meme, right? Something that would get shared on Facebook. So I want to just, I'm going to illustrate this for us. Oh my gosh, it's a long way down. Okay, so I I got a plank, okay? And hopefully this is in my back pocket still. Oh yeah, look at that, toothpick. So this is functionally what Jesus is trying to communicate here with uh, what he's saying in these verses. You have a plank in your eye, right? So you're walking around with this 
sticking out of your eye. And someone else has, you know, the equivalent of a toothpick, a toothpick or a speck in their eye. And you're looking at the toothpick. And you're like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you do something about this? This is really embarrassing that you have this thing in your eye. You're really making the church look bad with that toothpick in your eye, right? You really, you really need to deal with it. You see, you see the humor, right? You see the irony of what Jesus is saying here. So, so here, here's his point. If you are a judgmental person, if you are a self-righteous religious hypocrite, this is what you look like. You're, you're the guy who goes to marriage counseling with me and says, if you could just get my wife to change these four things about herself, then our marriage would be better. Right, super awkward, super awkward moment. I'm like, you have a plank in your eye. You're the, you're the guy that comes home from work and you yell at the kids because the dishes aren't done and you complain and gripe, but you've been working 12-hour days, 60-hour weeks, whatever it is, you're angry all the time, you're frustrated, you can't figure out why your family doesn't love you. Instead of just asking them, my religious hypocrite, you just yell at people all the time. And then you complain to your buddies at work, right? You complain to your community group, you complain to your DNA group, man, my family's so lazy, I do, blah, blah, blah. right? And they're just sitting there going, oh, this is awkward. Why won't they take that speck out of their eye? Why, what? Right? You see what Jesus is doing here? He's trying to show you, he's trying to show us in his kindness how foolish we look when we have a spirit of judgmentalism. He's trying to show us how we have completely and utterly in every way forgot the gospel. We've completely missed the point. The very essence of the gospel the beauty of what Jesus has done for us, the beauty of the justice of God, the beauty of God taking care of our sin is that he didn't even have a speck in his eye. And he came down and took the plank out of our own eye. But what you need to see about what Jesus is saying here, and again, this is, this is good. This is his kindness to us. He's saying you are incapable of helping your family, helping your church, helping your community group, helping your DNA group, changing the city, doing anything unless you take care of the own brokenness in your life first. Do you want to know the way to fix your marriage? Take care of the brokenness in your own life. But what about him? Plank. Do you want to know how to fix and repair broken relationships in your life with your kids, with whomever? Clean up your own life. Take the plank out of your own eye. But what about that? Speck. Well, when I meet with people, when I do pastoral counseling, this is how I parent my kids. People come to me, they complain about someone else and I turn it back around and talk to them. Like if you ever come to me with a problem about your community group or your community group leader or your DNA group or your wife or your kids or anything else, and you know this, if you've done this, the first thing I do is I turn around and I point the finger back at you. Why? Because you have a ginormous plank sticking out of your eye. It's like you come home, uh, come back to work after a lunch meeting and someone has like, you know, spinach in their teeth, a good friend says something. 
I'm trying to help. Because Jesus says, until you deal with this stuff, you're of no good to the kingdom. Uh, Jordan Peterson has this line, which I think needs to be widespread in our world, which is if you want to change the world, you need to make your bed and clean up your room. Absolutely. In other words, take care of your own house before you try and change the world, right? Don't be like a 20-year-old who's in his pajamas yelling at the world on Facebook about all the problems when you don't have a job and you don't even know how to make your bed and you haven't washed your sheets in three months. Like, that's just ridiculous. Don't do that. And he makes a good point, and it's a point that needs to be shared very, very widely in our world right now. But I think he misses the point. Because Jesus' point isn't just clean your room and then go change the world. You have to clean your heart. And before you clean your heart, you can't do anything. You can't change your life. You can't change your marriage. You can't change your kids. You're not going to reach your neighbors. You're not going to be able to influence this church until you have dealt with the plank that is sticking out of your eye. This is what he says. Look at what he says in verse 5. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. See, because you're so focused on the speck in someone else's eye, you're staring at it. You're staring at someone else's problem, someone else's brokenness, someone else's sin, and you're so focused on their thing that you can't see your own sin. And notice what Jesus calls people who do this. He says, you hypocrite. I've been using that word a lot this morning. He uses it a lot to describe the religious leaders, Pharisees, and teachers of the law. What does the word hypocrite mean? It means actor or pretender. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying you're, when you do this, when you call out the speck while you have a plank, when you try and deal with everyone else's brokenness, when you have not first dealt with your own, what are you? You're an actor. You're a pretender. See, you're pretending to care about righteousness, about holiness, about whatever it is, the thing that you're criticizing, you're pretending to care about it. But you don't actually care about it because you haven't actually taken care of your own heart. If you actually cared about righteousness, you would deal with the unrighteousness in your own heart. If you actually cared about brokenness, you would deal with the brokenness in your own heart first, but you don't. What do you care about? Elevating yourself putting others down, making yourself look great. To which Jesus says, do not judge or you will be judged. So where, where does this take us? Right? We're all sitting here going, eh, okay. Got it. Guilty. What now? If you go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lays out for us the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs be the kingdom of God. He just goes on and on and talks about all these, 
these realities that need to take place in our heart in order for us to be a kingdom person. That's what he's doing again here. This is what a kingdom person looks like. So, so how do we get to this place? How do we deal with the, the, the log that is in our eye? It's by coming to Jesus. See, the reality is we can't clean up our own hearts. Well, we can try, we can, we, can, we can do religious things, we can work really hard, we can try and be better people, but the problem is all it's going to do is amplify what's already there, which is hypocritical, a hypocritical religious judgmental spirit. It's going to just cause us to become more religious. So what we have to do is come to this place where we sit at the fit of, feet of Jesus and recognize that we have nothing to offer. We have to humble ourselves, see our brokenness for what it really is, and receive the grace and receive the love and receive the mercy that Jesus offers us. And it's when we get to that place that there's something that happens when you come to the foot of the cross. Like, it's really hard to get to the foot of the cross and stare at your crucified Lord and Savior and then have a self-righteous thought. Isn't it? It's really hard to think, to dwell on what Jesus has done for us. All that he endured, all that he afforded us, and then get to this place where we go, I'm pretty good. And so what Jesus is wanting to do here in his kindness to us is draw us to that place where we humble ourselves, where we come to him, where we receive his grace and mercy. And then here's what happens, friends. We are changed. We are transformed. We start to live differently. Our lives look more like the kingdom of God than they did yesterday. Our lives look more like Jesus than they did before. The Spirit changes us. It transforms us. And we are no longer people who are judgmental. We are now people who are less judgmental. And then we do it again the next day. Now, I wish, I wish that this is where Jesus ended because it's a great wrap-up, right? Call the band up, play soft music, talk about the cross, call us to communion, whip us up in a frenzy, but this isn't where he ends. He goes on, verse 6, and says this, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, if you've been paying attention, if you're still awake, right? Here's what we've been hearing. Don't judge, don't judge, don't judge, don't judge, don't judge, don't judge. Verse 6, judge. <laughs> what? Verse one to five, we're all about, right, you know, not to be a judgmental person. And then verse six, he's like, you better, you better really think and discern. Well, Martin Luther, who described the, the Christian life like this, he, he said the Christian life is like a drunk guy trying to ride a horse, right? You just keep falling off from one side to the other side. And, and what Jesus is trying to do here is he's saying, like, you better be careful because here's what can happen in the life of a person, in the heart of the person, because the human heart is incurably religious. You will always swing the pendulum out way too far. Another way of thinking about this, for every mile of road, there's two miles of ditches. And so if Jesus just left it at verse five, we would become a weak, soft people who did not hold 
uh, to the standard that Jesus calls us to hold to. But he's not just that. He's not calling us to just that. He actually says here, I want you to use discernment. I want you to think through the ways in which you share the gospel, which is what he's specifically talking about here. And listen to what he says. Do not give what is sacred, talking about the truths of the gospel. Do not give dogs what is sacred, sorry, and do not throw pearls to pigs. In other words, there's this beautiful truth, this beautiful reality that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to discern who you're going to share that with. And this is a hard word. But on a morning like this morning, I think it's a great word for us. What he is saying is there are some people who are like dogs and pigs. Not, he's not equating you with dogs and pigs. He's not devaluing that person as a human being. But what he's saying is you will treat the gospel in the same way a dog or a pig would treat something precious or a pearl. You're going to trample on it. Meaning you're going to see no value in it. You're going to turn away from it. You're not going to give it what it deserves. And Jesus is saying to his people, discern who you share the gospel with. Again, this is like, well, I've never heard this before. Aren't we supposed to share the gospel with everybody? Yeah, absolutely. We're supposed to share the gospel with everybody. But Jesus many times gives his disciples instructions that say things like, you know, if you go into a village and share the gospel and you don't get the response you're looking for, shake the dust off on your feet and walk away. Use discernment. Share the gospel with people. Invest in people. Pour into people where you're seeing a rate of return on your investment. We're actually seeing people make response. If you're sharing the gospel with people and they're hard-hearted and they're not interested, then move on. Use discernment. Think this through. I mean, there's been people in our lives, there's been many times in our lives where my wife, Kelly, and I have sat down. We've been on mission to a particular group of people. This happened just within the last couple of years where there's a particular group of people who we were on mission to, and we were just sensing that they were not responding. We'd invested a lot of time. We'd shared the gospel many times. We'd been like giving up our vacations, our Friday nights to spend with these people. Like we're talking five or six years we had been with them and had seen very little, some, but very little spiritual fruit from all of the investment. And I remember we were walking to a party at one of their houses one night in our neighborhood. And the conversation literally went like this. Should this be the last party where we've actually like kind of clear our schedule and maybe we need to start figuring out a new group of people to hang with and share the gospel? We're not going to just throw them aside, but maybe this isn't the place. Maybe these aren't the people that God wants us to share the gospel with. So let's keep praying about it. So we go to the party that night, and man, we had some awesome spiritual conversations, came home, you know, we just felt super encouraged, continued on in that mission field, have had many opportunities to share the gospel, but we need to think like this as believers. This is what Jesus is calling us to do. Use discernment, right? We got six seconds on this planet. There's a lot of people in our city that don't know Jesus, and we need to pour out our lives for those who are going to actually respond to the gospel. They're not going to treat it with contempt, but they're going to respond to it. And so what he's asking us to do is use discernment, use right judgment in determining who we are going to share the gospel with. But I think there's another way in which this applies to what Jesus is saying here. And this is where I'm going to kind of wind down. I'll invite the band to come up. But but here's, here's what Jesus is saying. There's some of us 
who even though we're in a church gathering on a Sunday morning, even though we know when to stand, we know when to sit, we know all the right things to do and all the right things to say, even though we're here, we profess to be followers of Jesus, yeah, we might go to heaven when we die. There's still a sense in which we hold the gospel in contempt. Meaning our hearts are hard to the truths of the gospel. We're here, we're leaning in, our eyes are big, we're, ta- we're doing all the right things. But I'm going home this afternoon and my marriage is a disaster, my relationships with my kids are a disaster and I'm not doing anything about it. We've been living on the same street for 10 years and haven't, invested a moment in sharing the gospel with anyone else? See, what can happen to us if we're not careful? Because the human heart is incurably religious, is verse five, we become hypocrites. We become hypocrites. If my husband would change, then our marriage would be better. If my wife would do this, then things would get better. If my kids, if my boss, if my coworker, if my community group, if my DNA group, if someone out there would change, then it would all get better. Jesus is saying, do not hold the gospel of Christ in contempt. but allow it to soak, to wash over your heart. Soften you. Move you from a judgmental, hypercritical, religious hypocrite. grace-filled, mercy-enjoying follower of Jesus who's willing to repent, who's willing to humble themselves. The Spirit is willing to love people. Not a weak, anemic flake, but someone who cares about others more than they care about themselves. And so the question for us then is where, not if, but where in our lives is the gospel being held in contempt? Where are we quenching the work of the Spirit? Where are we not allowing the Spirit of God to have his way with our heart that we Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that in your kindness, you discipline us. In your kindness, you rebuke us. In your kindness, you, which we are not not living up to the things you've called us to. 
but you don't leave us there. You call us to more. You enter into our brokenness. You meet us and pick us up by our bootstraps instead of asking us to pull ourselves up. You come into our hearts and clean it rather than asking us to clean it. And then you walk with us. So Lord, whatever it is that we need to let go of, whatever area of our life we have just held on to so tightly, wherever that plank is that's sticking straight out of our eye, sober us up that we might see it. Call brothers and sisters around us to point it out and give us the grace and the strength to let go of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.